Are you a man looking for an intensive program to help you overcome sexually addictive behaviors? Gateway to Freedom is your answer. Gateway to Freedom is a three-day workshop for men seeking to overcome any destructive sexual habits. Whether married, single, or divorced, Gateway to Freedom will help men regain hope for a new life of purity and real contentment. The workshop is conducted by experts in the field of sexual addiction recovery with decades of combined experience. Read testimonials of workshop alumni at gatewaymen.com. Get all the info and register online at gatewaymen.com or call 1-800-49-PURITY. Hi, my name is Jonathan, and I'm the founder of the Gateway to Freedom Workshop. I want to personally invite you to register for our next workshop coming up August 18th through the 20th in Florida, just outside the most magical place on earth, Orlando. So call us today at 1-800-49-PURITY. That's 1-800-497-8748 or visit gatewaymen.com. You're listening to Pure Sex Radio, training men, educating women. Brought to you by Be Broken Ministries. Visit us on the web at puresexradio.com. Good day, radio listeners. Welcome to this edition of the Pure Sex Radio broadcast. We're so glad to have you with us. My name is Jonathan, and uh, we've got a special guest for you today. I'm excited to have Carter Featherston on the on the line with us. And Carter, did I pronounce your last name right? Please correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you did. It's actually, it's feathers and a ton of them, Featherston. Nice. Okay. Well, Carter, thank you for uh, being on the program with us today. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so listeners, we're gonna we're gonna unpack Carter's story in just a minute, and and just see some of the insights that God has given him through a a process of redemption. Um, but before we do that, I just want to let you know, as we do every now and then, that we're a listener supported broadcast, which basically means the only way that you're hearing our voices right now is because uh, generous and faithful partners have come alongside of us to join us uh, financially to be able to support the work that we're doing and allowing us to continue to. Uh, broadcast this all throughout not only the United States, but in over 100 countries around the world, and uh, be able to continue to spread light into dark places. And so if you'd like to come alongside and partner with us, you may do so uh, by going to puresexradio.com and then clicking on the donate button. Well, Carter, I want us to dive in. I would love for our listeners to just get to know you. So if you wouldn't mind just maybe uh, telling us some of your story and kind of what your history has been and and uh, what's gotten you to the point you are in your life today? Okay. Well, Jonathan, I grew up in a Christian home. Mom and Dad had both grown up as Southern Baptists in North Texas. And growing up in their home, they discovered grace about the time that I was five or six years old. But they'd been steeped in, you know, the more uh, legalistic versions of of Baptist churches. Mm -hmm. And so they were in a struggle themselves to really know and understand grace. And and I got the first part of grace, as most everybody does, the grace that is that God gives you freely what you could never earn or pay for yourself. So I grew up in this Christian home and went to Sunday school all my life, always involved in a youth group of some kind. And uh, When I reached college, I started working with Young Life, and then I taught junior high Sunday school class, and then uh, after college, I went to seminary 
in Dallas, and in there I worked with college students at a church for five years, and then I pastored in Louisiana for about nine years, and then I came to Louisiana, uh, to another city in Louisiana, where I, I pastored for four years as the senior pastor. So I spent uh, about 24 years in lay ministry and professional ministry, but I had been a sexual addict since I was 14 years old, Mm. and the addiction was always a secret. Oh, a couple of guys and I would talk about it at different times when we would have vulnerable discussions, Um, but for the most part, I never acknowledged how serious it was and how strong of a grip it had in my life. So and, tell us uh, about tell us about how that all began at 14 years old. Yes. Well, the story really begins in the fifth grade. It's like in fifth grade, something shifted, and it was um, something that all men can recognize. You know, around 10, 11 years old, life becomes very competitive for us men. You know, we were all buddies and pals in the neighborhood, riding our bikes together, fishing together, crossing the irrigation ditch pipeline together mm-hmm. and 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 we were everyone totally accepted one another then one day a new kid showed up in the fifth grade at my elementary school he was in the other class and i can remember very clearly sitting at the lunch table that day when the toughest guy in my class was sitting next to me that was james james looks over at the water fountain And he sees the new kid, and he said, wow, there's that new kid in the fifth grade. Across from me, Terry and Cal turned around to look at him, too. And what happened over the next minute was that masculinity showed up at the table there. We didn't know his name, but he showed up. And in the next few minutes, we had a dialogue on who could beat up who, who's stronger than who, who's tougher than who. And this really, this conversation broke out around me mm-hmm. while I sat there eating silently because I was a skinny. I I was I looked down at my skinny wrists and my little fists and I thought, oh, that's great. I lose. All of life has changed and now I lose. Mm. I won't be uh, I won't be among the ranking. Uh, contenders of the heavyweight class of the fifth grade, right? Nor the nor the sixth grade, and so on that day, I realized that as competition broke a whole new level, I was inadequate, I was skinny and inferior, and there was not a thing I could do about it. And I just sat there in silence, and I realized at age forty-two when I went into counseling at a clinic in Arizona. The first week of intensive counseling, when they had us draw up the events of our life that created our shame, that memory came up. And I realized, oh my gosh, I've been sitting at that lunch table now for 30 years. Mm -hmm. I never left. Emotionally and mentally, I was stuck at that table feeling inferior, inadequate, I'll never be enough, and I can't do a thing about it. So how did that? So, so how did that then translate 
to what what you experienced then when you were 14? You know, how did that carry over into, as you said, it was you were 14 when you really started kind of down this road of, of sexual addiction? And yes, how did that well, how did that paradigm of what exp- what you experienced in fifth grade sort of feed or propel what occurred later in terms of the sexual brokenness? Mm-hmm. Well, what happened was you can imagine the emotional state that I carried feeling inferior and inadequate for years. Then you go to junior high school where all these other kids feed in from other grade schools. And now you're really way down the pecking order and there's fierce competition everywhere around you. And so it was after eighth grade that I went to camp. It was Boy Scout camp. And there I learned to masturbate. Mm -hmm. And I learned to attach to the masturbation uh, scripts, scripts out of my heart, scripts in which the girls not only liked me, but they admired me. You know, God gave each of us a need to be accepted and wanted and loved, mm-hmm. but he didn't put into us a need to be admired like old Nebuchadnezzar. Or you like know, worshipped. Yes, worship, admired. I wanted I wanted the admiration of the woman, and I idolized and adored the woman herself in the hopes that she might adore and idolize me. And so my masturbation scripts were all about that. And um, it felt so good and felt so comforting to my heart, and I was really so lonely in my heart that it was a deadly combination, the loneliness, the inferiority, nothing I could do about it, but I could escape in a fantasy world. And since we've already studied what what the sexual chemical cocktail does to the brain, you know, we know it's as addictive as cocaine or heroin. And so I became addicted by the time I was 14, and uh, I was stuck and trapped there and could now, not get my way out. Yeah, now, and a lot of what you're saying um, I, I can completely resonate with, and, and it, makes, it makes sense. Uh, some of our listeners might be thinking, okay, this sounds a lot like um, the way you're describing this is coming from somebody who's had maybe a lot of time to, as an adult, reflect and process on what was going on and come to these very um, correct and adequate and... and helpful conclusions about what was actually going on. But in your 14 year old mind, was it, was it that clear? I mean, Hey, I'm going and I'm creating these scripts and it's all, you know, so, so maybe help our listeners to be able to say, you're explaining something that has been highly processed now through a lot of thought and reflection and healing. What was it like though, as a 14 year old, you know, because I don't think we, we have that capacity as children to process the way you're describing things now. And I'm not trying to, you know, make a, a huge deal no, here, I think, but I think sometimes. No, I think you're asking, you're asking a really good question because, because yes, at 14, I had not figured this out. All I knew was I felt incredibly lonely. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm already feeling inadequate, inferior and lonely then when I start lusting over young ladies and uh, fantasizing of them and masturbating, now I'm also feeling despicable 
and a total disappointment to God, mm. because I'm a Christian kid. And so everything I'm doing is in secret. No one knows it, but I know God does. And I'm so I'm wrestling with shame now. I didn't know what shame was, but I knew I hated who I was. I hated how God had made me, but now I hated what I was doing and the secrecy of it. And it made me go to school and feel even more shameful, more inadequate, more inferior. And it made me just scared of girls. I wouldn't even talk to certain girls. And, uh, you know, it just created such a shameful identity. Mm-hmm. And, and there's something that you're saying, Carter, that I think is so common to the stories that we often hear of of those who, out of their childhood, eventually get entangled in sexual sin and sexual strongholds, is mm-hmm. this lack of safe relationships to be able to unpack those feelings. Because it sounds to me like... You're just carrying all of this alone. You don't, you're not telling us that you had, you know, a dynamic relationship with your dad where these conversations were just open and frequent. And, and I could be wrong, but it sounds like you're carrying all of this by yourself and trying to process it by yourself. No. Yes, you're exactly right. I was. My home, even though it was a Christian home, it was not an emotionally open home. We were like all emotionally detached from one another. Uh, I remember one day I did a role play in a counseling seminar. Someone said, let's get a volunteer to show us what your family looked like spatially. And so, you know, you were to put different people on the platform at certain distances from each other. And I remember I volunteered and I laid my family out up there and put my brother way over here on the right and and the rest of us in a but isolated from each other. And I remember the counselor looked at me and said, gosh, how did that make you feel? And it struck me and I teared up and, you know, this was just three years ago. And I said, I felt so lonely. Mm. And so that's how it was in our home. I was scared to death to let my mother know that I was in love with a young lady, that at the eighth grade, I had a crush on a seventh grade girl. I didn't want her to know I was scared to death for that to be known. So it just tells me as I look back, we were a family fearful of being honest and transparent, feeling embarrassed by our emotions. So, you know, as most high school boys, everyone's masturbating, but no one's talking about it. No one's telling anybody about Mm -hmm. it. And now with the Internet today, men in the church everywhere are looking at porn and they're doing the same thing. They're not telling anybody. They're too embarrassed, too ashamed. And so everyone just suffers in silence, and so did I. You know, it makes, me, in, I, it makes me think, Carter, I, when you're saying that, isn't it interesting, you know, when we look back to the, the Genesis story and when God looked at Adam and said, it's not good for man to be alone, so many times we, we tie that only to the immediate context of then him bringing Eve and, the, you know, performing the first marriage and the union of a husband and a wife. Um, but I think as you as you look throughout the rest of Scripture, especially in the New Testament, as the church is birthed, um, we recognize that that idea of aloneness uh, or loneliness, the idea of doing life alone, is was never part of God's design as a people, not just in in marriage. And so what I'm hearing you say, and it's so common for for what we hear 
in terms of kind of being the bedrock and the foundation is is on the one side there's this shame identity that's birthed and on the other side there's this however it gets embraced there's this belief that i have to carry that shame alone and so the, it's the yeah. i think it's the alone is the isolation that so often cripples men cripples people um, in dealing with their struggles in a healthy way because we just don't have right. those outlets to be able to share what's going on. And especially with kids, that's why I think parents, leaders, we need to be initiating those conversations, right? Instead, of, I mean, what, what 14-year-old has the capacity within himself to say, you know, I really probably need to process these emotions outwardly with somebody else. I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, you're already kind of, you're so self-absorbed anyway when you're a teenager. You don't think in those terms, which is why I think adults, parents really need to take that responsibility on. Right, right. I think youth pastors need to just boldly go where no man has gone mm-hmm. before. They need to step in privately, one-on-one, with all the boys in the group and just flat-out say, I'm going to assume you're doing it too, unless you tell me otherwise. And when you phrase it like that, the little boy knows, well, okay, I'm not going to lie. And he already assumes I'm doing it, and then we can have an honest conversation. But, you know, Jonathan, the other thing on top of that is you're lonely, you're isolated, you're not talking about it, but then worse is that your masturbation life is a secret, and Satan loves secrets. Mm-hmm. As long as sexual behavior is a secret, he can take that and beat you up with it every day. And so Satan tortures us because of our secrets and makes us feel even more ashamed and then more withdrawn and lonely. Absolutely. And less likely to talk about it. So tell me what tell us what happened then, you know, post high school or whatever it looked like when you when you eventually got out on your own and, and how this secret had grown and what kind of manifestations it had once you got uh into into college. Yes. Well, this is almost embarrassing to say. I went straight to Bible college out of high school and continued my addiction there. Of course, I remember the first few days of and to the school, I thought, oh, I've got to quit. I've got to quit. Now I'm going to Bible college now. I've got to quit. But within the first two or three days, I masturbated. And two or three days later, I did it again. And pretty soon, it was just back on in full force. And uh, later, I went. I transferred to a Christian college. And and interesting thing was, all of my relationships with girls were unhealthy. Mm. I was a poor leader because I was hungry, lonely, wanting my own admiration and wanting to worship the woman. That all my relationships were unhealthy except probably one. I had one decent relationship in my senior year in college. But I left there and then went to seminary. And in seminary, did again have unhealthy relationships as a single man. I didn't get married till long after seminary even. So uh, it just continued to haunt me and torture me. I continued to live in the shame. It continued to be a secret And uh, I was still wrestling, though, now, because I'm in Bible college, Christian college, and seminary, and I'm knowing of the goodness of God and the grace of God. And that that is a comfort to some degree. 
you know, part of my heart and my mind are compart. It's all com- compartmentalized, as we men are good at doing. So my sex addiction was over in one compartment. The rest of my life, I could function as a spiritual leader to other young men. Uh, I was working with college students and discipling them and teaching them. And I was able to uh, have a fairly healthy relationship with God, although today in my processing, I look back and not at all have the relationship with God that I thought I had. You know, I knew that I was also living with lots of phoniness and no integrity, and I just did not know what it took to break the power of this addiction. Mm-hmm. So now you mentioned these unhealthy relationships and, and the secrecy aspect. During this time from, you know, from 14 and then into college and even in the seminary, uh, were there ever any times, did anybody ever know about this? Did you ever share this with anyone? Did you ever share it with anybody you were in a relationship with? I mean, what, uh, how, how deeply held was the secret? Well, Jonathan, I, I know that I shared it with two or three, four people, but every time I did it, I would lie. I would say it's maybe once a week that I do it. I masturbate once a week. And most people would look at that, you know, and think, well, okay, you know, you're single, you're a young guy, mm-hmm. you're virile and healthy. Okay, you know, that's good. And so my lie always bought me more time and bought my way out of closer scrutiny and inspection. And I'd go home just knowing I was lying. I was lying. And so really a lot of my life was just about lying, lying to myself and lying uh, about my behavior to myself because you can't live with shame and pain. It's too much. And so to bear with it, I just continued to lie to myself, which is why we addicts are usually pretty good liars mm-hmm. and so, deceivers. Yeah. So at what point then was there a breakthrough? At what point was there kind of that tipping point where you started really um, coming into the light and getting well and healing? And at what point did that occur? Well, when my wife, once I got married, um, three years later, my wife and I moved to, uh, well, five years later, we moved to another town where I became the senior pastor of a church. And it was a small church of less than 200 people, but we got into an incredible growth. The church doubled in size, in fact, more than doubled, and we got into a building campaign, and we'd been renting on the campus of a Christian school, so it was time for this church to buy their own property and build a building, and I led the church in doing all of that. I'd never done it before, and the stress and the pressure of preaching every week and leading this growing church and being under more scrutiny and the pressure of a church building and just the fact that because I was a sexual addict, my marriage was terrible. My marriage was lonely and empty. My wife had a lot of anger because, you know, rightly so, because I had withdrawn emotionally from her. I was pulling away from her. She did not have my heart and she knew it. And, Um, But she had no idea what the problem was because it was still a secret addiction. Mm -hmm. And so the marriage was strained. 
the church ministry was strained. And so as a result, my addiction grew to whole new levels. I mean, it's exploded to higher and newer levels, levels so deep and painful that I, I don't even talk about them because I don't want to embarrass my wife anymore. We've, we've been through it. It's no longer a secret. We've shared the deepest, darkest secrets, and we've survived. But my, my addiction went to whole new levels, scandalous levels. And my wife discovered it, busted me, and when she confronted me, I had no place to go. I remember I collapsed to the floor. I felt like I was maybe having a heart attack. I uh, was, My breathing was... Uh, staccato. I felt like my heart was going to burst. My body was trembling. I mean, when she confronted me, all my shame burst out. And I just thought, this is it. My life is over. My life is over. My life is over now. And um, in the early minutes and moments of it, I just went so numb I thought maybe this is what a heart attack feels like. Oh, that'd be great if I could just die. That would be best. Mm -hmm. But the days turned into some weeks, and I did a lot of fasting, and suddenly it was the fasting and the deep regret that finally broke the power of this addiction. Mm -hmm. And when I counsel with men today, we get to that stage where if if we're doing all the heart work and the shame work and they're still not getting free, I tell them it's time for you to start fasting. Your body mm-hmm. is in total control, and you've got to fast to get control over your body. And your brain and your penis are just taken over. So um, well, I did I like, a lot of fasting, and I finally broke the power of it. Mm-hmm. And I always like to say, you know, r- real transformation doesn't come simply by confession. It really comes through brokenness and repentance. And I always point people yeah. to the passage in Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, which talks about a godly sorrow that produces repentance. And it's very different from a worldly sorrow. And I think mm-hmm. that's the thing that shame, shame really trains us in is a worldly sorrow. Hey, just don't get caught. Make yeah. sure you keep your secret, keep your image up, keep your reputation up. Make sure you got the facade that everybody, you know, is smiling at and thinks is wonderful. And we see this all over the church many times is we've got people that oh, yeah. are decaying inwardly because they've not embraced the godly sorrow that, like King David said, against you and you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And there's that that brokenness that I hear in your story of getting to a place where you recognize the depth of your your sin and and brokenness and weakness and finally came to a place of acknowledgement and recognition of that. And Carter, we've we've yeah. only got a couple minutes left, and I really want to be able to get you to be able to share with our listeners out there who are feeling like they're on the verge, they're on that edge, and they're saying, "I, man, I, I still am carrying a secret, and I, I've kind of leaked it out, kind of like you did. Hey, I do this once a week, but I'm not really being fully, you know, vulnerable. What would be your mm-hmm. advice and and charge to them?" Um, in hearing your story, what would you say to them as the key things that they need to do to start this journey towards healing and, and purity? They're hard to find in the church, but everyone needs to find someone they can be honest with who will not crucify them after they've told their secrets. Mm-hmm. Someone who is safe and is not going to take you before other people and bring condemnation on you. 
a safe person that you can then tell your whole story. Start to tell as much as you can and begin to tell your story, but this time you're telling it to be free of it. You're mm-hmm. telling it to bring to to embarrass it. Embarrass your story because there's no condemnation. There is no condemnation from the Lord Jesus Christ. Other people will condemn you. Oh yeah, your mother-in-law will condemn you. Your sister-in-law will condemn you. That lady who sits next to your wife in the choir, she'll condemn you, but not God. You need to understand Isaiah 54, where he says, I'm no longer angry and I'll no longer rebuke you. And if anyone comes against you, it's not me. It's not me, says God. I'm not out to hurt you. Remember, the prodigal son came home and was trying to repent, and the father even interrupted his repentance and Mm -hmm. said, let's party. My boy's home. Let's party. They need to know you're coming home to a father who probably won't even let you tell your whole repentance story. Absolutely. Well, Carter, how can folks get uh, get a hold of your book? My book is uh, is an e-book on Kindle. It's at the Kindle store on Amazon. And I've got it on sale today for 99 cents. And I'm just trying to help get the word out. And I've uh, reduced the price then if that will help. And it's uh, they can Google, I mean, they can search on Kindle with my name or the title of the book, which is called God Knows Your Struggle and He's Got Help. Excellent. Well, and we'll also post that on our website. But Carter, thank you for being with us and sharing your story. Would you mind uh, staying with us for another time to be able to uh, to share a little bit more? I would love to. Great. Love well, to. Uh, we look forward to having you back and and. Uh, and talking more. And and listeners, we're always grateful that you have joined us, and we look forward to seeing you back here next time on the Pure Sex Radio broadcast. Pure Sex Radio is paid for by Be Broken Ministries. Visit us online at puresexradio.com.